Rack's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Dr Samantha Pillay graduated from the University of Adelaide Medical School in 1992 to become the first female urological surgeon in South Australia. She's always been driven to study hard and to work hard. You'll hear shortly how from a very early age, a physical condition prevented her from being able to walk. That made her determined to find the will to pursue her dreams and to help others in need. Dr Pillay is the founder of Continence Matters, an online resource to educate the medical professional and the general public on bladder and continence issues. And if that's not enough, she's also an accomplished speaker, an entrepreneur and author of the No Recipe Cookbook and When I'm a Surgeon. So what drew Dr Pillay to a career in surgery? She's talking to Chris Ashmore. I think it first started when I was a very small child. I had congenital hip dysplasia and it was a missed diagnosis, which meant I failed to walk. I had several years in hospital and multiple operations. And my home was a surgical ward. That's why I spent almost 18 months of my life. And I was more at home there than at home. I started school in a wheelchair. So I already had a strong association, probably not the best way, with surgery. My father was a GP, so I had a medical connection. And when I was 15, in year 11, I did a work experience in cardiothoracic surgery because I was interested in surgery. And it was in the 1980s. And I got to do a lot of things that probably a work experience kid would not get to do nowadays. I was able to change and go into theatre and watch open heart surgery on the bypass. I was there at seven o'clock in the morning. The junior doctors, I think just because they wanted to offload work and the nurses taught me how to take blood. I was taking blood. I was putting in drip lines and the cardiologist there even got me to do a cardioversion on a patient. So I got to do all this amazing stuff, even though I was completely untrained and I, I don't think any of that would pass the regulations. So that sort of sealed my fate. I then did medical school, wanted to do surgical training and decided on urology because there was a lot of sit-down surgery and obviously the first thing I said explained I'd already been discouraged from doing surgery because of standing up and my limitations. So I was attracted to urology. I was pretty strong-minded and no female had trained in urology in South Australia. That was probably like red rag to a bull for starters at that young age. So I chose urology and then I subspecialised in female urology and incontinence surgery. So I suppose as I evolved and as I matured, I then saw that this was an underserviced area of urology, that no one in South Australia had an interest or had done it. And I actually decided to purely subspecialise in incontinence surgery because I felt that women's health, especially in that area, didn't get the attention it deserved. There was a lot of information about prostate cancer and stones and other areas that urologists taught. It was pretty scary. I actually purely subspecialised from the beginning, which a lot of uh, urologists would have a general interest, but not exclusively. So I was actually the first urologist in Australia to purely subspecialise in female urology. Well, it seems to me that um, you're pretty focused on a medical career, but did you ever feel that having hip dysplasia ever held you back from pursuing a career in medicine? Yes, definitely. It was the physical limitation with long hours to work and obviously a lot of pain. And 
yet now with sort of hindsight and maturity and I look back, I was in so much pain that I probably couldn't have done anything unless it was something so demanding and so focused that I I needed to be able to do something like that because it was the only thing that was able to get my mind off the pain. So I think actually being a surgeon was part of the whole solution to the problem. So I did have difficulties with my training because I couldn't dictate my hours and we had up to 100-hour weeks. We had 36-hour shifts and I had always had to do lots of hours every week, physio, Pilates, swimming, just to maintain a normal level of function and be able to sort of work and drive a car and stuff. So that all started to fall apart when I was training and you know, she all came to a head. I developed numbness paralysis. I was colorectal surgery registrar at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. I ended up seeing a neurosurgeon who said they thought I'd developed a spinal cord tumour and I was rushed in the middle of the day for an emergency MRI scan. Luckily, I hadn't. It was just due to just muscle wasting, weakness and deconditioning. So I definitely thought that I wasn't going to be able to pursue the career. I actually went and tried to pursue the very first case for Australia and New Zealand to do surgical training part-time. I involved the Women's and Surgery Committee. I had letters from my neurosurgeon, from my orthopaedic surgeon. I found a doctor I could job share with and I was flatly refused and told that you could never train to do a profession like surgery part-time. And, you know, I managed to muddle my way through. I did have the option if I wanted of taking the College of Surgeons to the Federal Court of Australia, so I, which I kept quiet, but now in my 50s I can, I can say that on their podcast. Times have changed. There is part-time training now. This was sort of 25 years ago. Any advice to anyone else, particularly trainees or junior doctors who are perhaps facing adversity? Everyone might have their unique battles. Life isn't fair. Someone might have more battles than, than someone else. There's always going to be lots of people worse off. No one wants to listen to you whinge. <laughs> There's no point looking for sympathy or pity. It's not going to get you where you want. So you've just got to ride the storm, put your head down and tough it out. Your life might not be easy and someone else might be easier, but you know, it's not going to make any difference. So... I would say if it's what you want to do, then you have to find a way to overcome whatever your barriers are. And as a result, it's made me stronger. Every battle I've had has made me stronger. So I kind of now, you know, after years and years, I have a motto that just when you think things in life can't get any worse, they do. So I've developed the philosophy, bring it on. When I feel like I'm just about to break, I've like got a reserve engine and I go into supercharge. So with that attitude, bring it on. Terrific. Now, you have written about women in surgery and female entrepreneurship. What changes have you seen in this space in your career? There's been a huge number of changes because it's over 20 years that I've been in practice. So, you know, almost 30 years since I've been in the area. Well, the first time I went to the hospital where I can now work, to do a case and get changed in the theatre change rooms. The change rooms were labelled doctors and nurses, doctors for the men, nurses for the female. I had to get changed in the nurses' change room. So there's a big difference there. Now they're called male and female. Society's expectations have really changed. A lot of people don't expect a female surgeon. They expect a lot more of me now because of my age. When I was young, but also in those times 20 years ago, Patients were almost in disbelief that I was the surgeon. Less than 4% of 
surgeons in Australia at the time were female. Now, even if they don't expect it, they're more likely to accept it. It took me 14 years of training to become a female surgeon. And during the whole of that training, I never worked on a unit with a female surgical consultant. So I spent years of my life training to become a surgeon and I was a female and I'd never actually seen a real live one in action. It wasn't actually until I'd finished my training that I went to work with Professor Helen O'Connell in Melbourne that I actually was in operating theatre operating with another woman consultant surgeon. So obviously there's a huge need still for role modelling and networking, but it was non-existent virtually when I started. And in business, I think businesses as a founder and a business owner even though there's a lot of women in business now. So there have been a huge amount of changes, which is why I'm so inspired to make a difference in that place as far as inspiring the next generation. Well, you're right. We've come a long way from those early days, but how are we now then? Still things need to be done? Yes. Well, there's been studies that have shown that children start forming career gender stereotypes around about the age of three. And when those stereotypes are formed through you know, family, parents, connections, media, books, school, education. So the best way or one of the most effective ways is prevention like with my medical hat. And that's what's driven me to write the Inspirational Career for Kids book series because self-belief is the fundamental number one thing. If you've got self-belief, then you will develop the skills that you need with your passion to overcome whatever those barriers are and break down those barriers. So a child can't be what they can't see. And so if a child develops self-belief and you establish before they form stereotypes that women can be surgeon, women can be entrepreneurs. The third book that I'm currently working on now is when I'm an astronaut, so women can be astronauts. Then They'll never form the bias that they can't be that because they've already established in their belief system that it's possible. So there is a lot more to be done and there is now developing that critical mass where there is diversity of women. You know, there's women that have kids, women that don't have kids, women that might be single mum like me, women of different culture and gender fluidity or whatever. So that builds a networking group for all women. Well, you identified the fact that there wasn't a lot of information about disabling bladder conditions or incontinence issues. Can you tell me what you've done to provide better information to the public? That has been one of my real passions in that, again, obviously I'm a specialist, but there's a whole lot that people can do before they get to me. And that's really what I wanted to build on. I wanted to make a difference so people didn't need to see me in the first place. Everything I've done is trying to do myself out of a job. So I wanted to build a resource and I did that through our website for the practice, continentsmatters.com, where I was able to put a lot of information there for the general public with written information and videos so that people can access their own information, but also GPs and students. I've also been very involved in public speaking and educational lectures, not just for the general public, but for GPs and even specialists, you know, geriatricians or other specialists, but also, you know, gynaecologists and urologists. And one of the things with COVID and a lot of stuff I've been doing with the books and online, you know, there's all these crossover skills. I decided after having given 
similar educational lectures for 20 years that I'd develop an online course for health professionals, which ended up being 42 videos so that health professionals that maybe couldn't attend face-to-face meetings or remote, you know, geographically remote and it's hard for them, they don't have the same opportunities to get to the city for educational evenings and develop patient handouts. So I've developed those resources for the medical community as well as for the general public. Well, you've certainly done a lot in your career and um, an inspiration to many people. Any advice for those listening who perhaps themselves want to facilitate change or, or forge a new path? Go for it. The best thing to do is to forge a new path. I love business. That's one of my other passions. And entrepreneurship is about solving people's problems. The success of a business is related on finding a new way of solving people's problems and turning that into a business. So you're going to be more successful potentially if you do forge a new path. So I think that it might be harder, but the potential rewards are going to be greater. And also, if it's something that you're passionate about, that's going to help a lot as far as doing the work that you need to do to get there. Well, as well as all the things you've achieved in your medical career, you're also an Amazon best-selling author. Do you think having a creative passion outside of surgery refines or improves your surgical practice and well-being? That's a really interesting question. So I was probably not doing anything very creative for the first 20 years. As I've now turned into my 50s, I think that having that creative interest or having another interest outside of medicine is even more valuable. And part of that is that Surgery, just like anything else, when you've been doing it for a long time, you can get into cruise control and yet we are people that need to be able to be sharp mentally and respond quickly to situations and be pushing ourselves to our limits and that's what drove us to become surgeons in the first place and that's what the first part of our careers are like. So I'd write opinion pieces for publication and also on my website and in fact one of the articles that I have written on my website is sort of 10 ways that creative writing has enhanced me as a surgeon. I'm not sure if I can remember all of them. But obviously, learning a completely different trade, a completely different whatever you do, if you go out and learn that, that's really important to keep your brain sharp and young. So I've found that I can learn faster now. I have greater focus. So I've always wanted to do more meditation. It's a long-term goal. But being able to focus in writing is a bit like meditation and all the benefits from it. Once you're in another industry, so doing something creative, it opens up your mind. You're able to think about things with a fresh perspective. You'll be more innovative. You're better at problem solving. And they're good skills for surgeon and for a business owner. The benefits just keep the more hybrid your skills, the more they cross over. I mean, there's opportunities. I probably wouldn't have been invited to be on this podcast. I've developed media skills, which has helped me with advocacy and my message. It's helped my creative skills. I probably wouldn't have produced the online continence course if I hadn't had those communication and media skills. I've developed IT skills, which everyone needs in a business right now. My writing is constantly improving because I'm writing so much. So many things. One of the things is I have more time by writing. Now, that might surprise you. How is that possible? (laughs) One of the biggest problems for me as a single mum was, you know, shopping, cooking, what's for dinner, you know, 
I was hangry and had decision fatigue at the end of the day. So ordering Uber Eats was like a chore. Going out took up too much time. So I ended up writing the No Recipe Cookbook, which was a way to intuitively cook without a recipe, just using what's available, shopping once a fortnight. And that has completely revolutionised my life as far as time and stress, no stress about what's for dinner. So writing has helped me in my professional surgical career in so many ways. It's ridiculous. Dr. Samantha Pillay. RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.